This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Odd, isn't it? Here in Los Angeles, capital of eternal youth, endless summer and all, that fear and loneliness should be running the town again, as in days of old. Like the Hollywood blacklist you don't remember, and the Watts rioting you do. But that's where our host sits, deep in his studio bunker, stuck inside of L.A. with the quarantine blues again. Welcome to Increment Vice. I'm your host, Travis Woods, and it is now day 5 billion, 687,423 of the COVID-19 quarantine. And God damn it, I miss people. I miss seeing my friends in person. I miss waiting in line with a crowd to see a movie at the Beverly Cinema here in LA. I miss shooting the shit with strangers at bars waiting through crowds at concerts and record stores, going out to dinner, the beaches, whatever. I miss people. And that is why the films of PPA in general and Inherent Vice in specific are so comforting to me right now. Because they're people movies. These are people films. And yeah, I know every movie has people in PTA makes people movies. And I can't think of another filmmaker since Jonathan Demme who cares as much for their people, for their characters, as PTA. The films of Anderson are suffused with nothing less than what I'd call an incandescent empathy for his characters. Beneath the influences on their sleeves brashness of Sydney and Boogie Nights, the rage and sorrow of Magnolia, the sweet confusion of Punch Drunk Love, and the chilly Kubrickian precision of There Will Be Blood, The Master, and Phantom Thread, there's this seemingly endless reservoir of humanity and compassion, so much so that it feels as if not just the films themselves, but the entire world is revolving around his characters. And you can also find that same just-beneath-the-surface magic, that incandescent empathy in the face of violent darkness in the works of today's guest, crime novelist William Boyle who has referred to his own vibrant novels of humanely depicted characters as Technicolor Noir. It was just a feeling I was writing as I was writing the book, he said. I love Douglas Sirk and Nicholas Ray movies, and I had the frame of that kind of sprawling melodrama in my head as a guiding principle. I loved the contrast of the story with that brightness. And it's that idea of technicolor noir, that incandescent empathy for characters light and dark, that is what makes Mr. Boyle here a perfect guest to talk about the film. Oh, and the fact that he's a fucking ace crime novelist and a huge Inherent Vice fan, that doesn't hurt much either. His newest novel, The Incredible City of Margins, was just released this past March, and I highly, 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 highly recommend you all go grab it. It's the last, one of the last fun things I did before the shutdown. And with that, I have to say, William, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Travis. It's it's really good to be here. I've been loving the loving the show, and I love the movie. So, looking forward to talking to you about it. 
Bless your heart. You, you, you. We'll just go through the list of all the things you love about what I do on this show. Please. <laughs> no, I, no I, you, I, honestly, the show has uh, really lifted the level of my obsession with this movie. I think, in in some ways that I couldn't have anticipated until I started listening. Um, it's just everything I like. I mean, it's not you know, it's just enthusiasm for the for the movie and for art in a way that I you know just love to hear somebody talk about something it's not i mean i don't know it's not academic in a bad way um like you know things things can get um when you when you dive deep on stuff but it's um it's it's the opposite of that it's just that kind of raw beautiful enthusiasm for for great art you know so it's been it's been really illuminating for me you know i mean i love the movie but i haven't um haven't read a lot or a ton about it and haven't talked to a lot of people about it because i don't know a lot of other people who love it <laughs> so <laughs> so this this uh podcast has been a really kind of just great companion for these last couple of months or a few months however long it's been well jesus i was just kidding but i'm gonna ask you for some more compliments throughout <laughs> the show thank you that was very nice of you to yeah say. man and hey, I'm glad I can spread. Uh, oh, I was, oh, this this was a bad metaphor. I was gonna say I'm glad to spread the disease of this obsession, but that's probably yeah. That's that was not on purpose. It's not on purpose, gang. I did not mean to do that, and I'm sorry. I am glad to. I am glad to expand the circle of obsession of this film because uh, it gets kind of lonely yeah. out here. So I'm glad to hear that someone. And if I can make, if I can transform more of you out there into. Um, insane nerds like myself that can't let this movie go then hey i'm a little less lonely and i'm awful lonely if you can't tell by that <laughs> intro <laughs> As, you know I, i'm kind of hungry to, to to connect with people right now and interact with people uh and speaking of which i did this we are going to hear to talk about a people movie one of pta's people list movies <laughs> and uh you're on the record you you can't deny it now because it's on the internet that yeah. Inherent Vice is not only your favorite film of 2014, is not only your favorite PTA film, but it's one of your favorite films the entire last decade. Yeah, for Why? sure. Why? Why and how did this odd movie strike such a chord with you? Um, yeah, I mean, I just I connected with it right away, and I think I, when I when I made you know made that decade list for i mean i just do that stuff for fun nobody cares i'm not a, a film writer or anything so um i just do it because I, I think it's a, a fun thing to do so when i made that list and i was thinking about what movies i'd seen this decade this past decade that really had a big impact on me i, I mean I, I didn't know when i was making that list which pta movie i was going to choose honestly because i think the master and phantom thread are also incredible masterpieces um but i settled uh pretty quickly on inherent vice because i think i think the master and, and phantom thread are kind of perfect and controlled and uh, inherent vice is a lot shaggier and and just more in tune with with me uh you know i mean um it was just the movie that stayed with me it was like i, I was saying a little while ago before um before we came on um it was it's one of the few things i rewatch a lot uh, i don't i don't when i was a kid coming up watching movies i rewatched stuff compulsively but um as an adult i, I don't rewatch stuff that much um you know i'm always kind of after 
seeing something I haven't seen before. And so for me to connect with a movie in a way where I, I want to rewatch it, even a couple of times a year, um, usually means that it's it's having some kind of major effect on me that I'm, I'm trying to process. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it was uh, out of the gate. It was one of those movies that I just kind of was I was with it um, and I, I loved it. I loved the feeling of it. It felt like uh, the first time when I was like, you know, 18 or something when I heard Neil Young or Bob Dylan and like, you know, it was like Cowgirl in the Sand or Visions of Joanna. Like I didn't I didn't fully get it, but I loved it and it was accessible genius. It wasn't like off-putting genius, you know, um, to me. I mean, I know some people probably find it off-putting, but it was, um, it I was, think a yeah, lot it was, of, I think a lot of people yeah. find it <laughs> off-putting. Um, yeah. So it was just, you know, it was, it was definitely, um, I think I listed it on that decade list right behind first performed. And I think if I made that list now, even a few months later, I would put it ahead of first performed, um, in the number one spot. And the only thing I would put ahead of it, if I was, counting it would be twin peaks the return which is the only other thing i obsessed over more i think um so those were those were kind of my big two obsessions of the decade and thus i think they're, you know they're at the top of my list they were the things i couldn't stop thinking about couldn't stop you know talking about to people who would have me to talk about it you know it was just those were the things that really just kind of lasted in my mind and, and um got yeah. me Wait a minute. The other people that have you talk about it, have you been go going on other Inherent Vice podcasts? <laughs> no, 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 no. William. I mean, mo mostly, actually, could in you? that case, I was talking about Twin Peaks, The Return, in that <laughs> case, because there were a lot of people who wanted to talk about that, but I didn't have a lot of people who I knew who wanted to talk about Inherent Vice really after I got <laughs> We are, we're a sad, lonely crew, man. <laughs> yeah. There's not a lot I of us out get there. That. I couldn't get that conversation <laughs> started. Well, this uh, one of the things that you said in there that I think is so fascinating, and I think I think it's one there's a billion reasons. It's funny. Every episode I say the reason I love inherent vice and it's always a different reason each episode. Um, but one of the reasons I, I think I love inherent vice is that messiness that you were talking about. It's, it's, yeah. it's not the, it's not the, the, the cold distant genius holding you at arm's length. And I think that, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I love, as I said, that kind of that, there's that kind of chilly Kubrickian precision to something like yeah, Phantom yeah. Thread uh, or to something like The Master, which up until Inherent Vice, I was convinced The Master was going to was PTA was never going to top that film. Yeah, when I, I walked out of that theater and I was, just, I was like, there's just that's 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 the one 100 years from now. If we're still here, yeah, that's the one they're going to talk about above all else. Yeah, you know, that might still be true. I don't know. But um, unless, you know, someone's carrying the torch and there's a Inherent Vice podcast in, you know, 2120. Well, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> but uh, something you said that was interesting to me is is that there is a there's something raggedy about this movie. There's yeah. something not in control and maybe a bit of an odd comparison. It reminds me a little bit of Sam Peckinpah's Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia yeah, Maybe totally. not so much in tone because there's there's no film like that, but that feeling of the directors driving a standard transmission car and the transmissions 
just about ready to slip out of gear. It never yeah. quite, it never quite does, but you feel it shaking. You feel everything starting to shake, and any minute now, it's going to slip out of gear and run. It's he's not going to be able to keep it between the ditches. The miracle of both films is that both directors managed to, but it, there's that sense of of danger and of yeah. unpredictability. And while the danger is far more ominous, I think uh, in, in in Alfredo Garcia, it's still pretty heavy and inherent vice. And there's also, and it works both for the darkness, but also the light. You never know what what scene, what tone a scene is going to take, and whether if it's a if it's a comic scene, you have no idea how insane things are going to become. Like you know, who could imagine that when when Doc walks into the the seat of all evil, the Golden Fangs headquarters, he's going to see Marty Short chasing yeah. his secretary around <laughs> with his pants around his ankles. You just yeah. you wouldn't have guessed. You wouldn't have guessed. You wouldn't yeah. have guessed. Or say when, you know, Shasta returns, who would have expected the the heaviness, the overwhelming heaviness right. of, of the sex scene that follows. And there's that sense in Inherent Vice, and I think it's only ever happened in PTA's filmography once before, and that's in Punch Drunk Love, where it just feels like it could, it could explode at any moment. It could run off the rails at any moment. It could fail at any moment. And I think that makes it not that the other films aren't interesting but this makes it somehow more interesting to me that at any moment yeah this could all fall to pieces and that's wild that's that's amazing to me it's exciting to me and i love the master but the master is not exciting yeah no offense to master fans out there yeah no i love the master too and i and i'm i'm with you i mean I, when i saw that i thought it was it was honestly probably the best movie going experience of my life i saw it on 70 millimeter and um in new york and i didn't think i mean i, I thought it was his best movie i thought yeah that was that was the, the the top for me and so when inherent vice came out i was i was prepared to love it you know i mean i love all of his movies but um i didn't think it was going to be because of the source material, um, you know, and, and not not being super into or interested in pension generally, I wasn't. I was more excited about it as a PTA movie. So, but you know, I, I didn't know what to expect um, on, on another level. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that rawness and that unpredictability is really what makes it totally, you know, just up my alley. I mean, it it doesn't feel as as kind of you know, perfect and crystal, you know, kind of, it's just, it's, it is scene to scene like Twin Peaks, the return, like, you know, tonally makes these leaps that are amazing, like screwball comedy scene, you know, that bleeds into a kind of noir scene that bleeds into a kind of scene that has the vibe of a, of, of horror or something, you know, I mean, oh, so yeah. it's all over the place. And I, I love that about it. And that's what makes, it's another thing that makes it so incredible is a filmmaker making those kind of leaps can only do it if they're willing to fail. Yeah. Like it, it requires the risk of failure. You look at something like, like Twin Peaks, the return shouldn't work. Frankly, it, it shouldn't. Well, yeah. a lot of, and some people don't think it does. I mean, they're insane and they're wrong, but it takes a, the willingness and, and the self trust of a filmmaker who who's willing to risk all of this, you know, two or three years worth of work and uh, of writing and filming and everyone involved to risk failing all of them, but also trusting in the fact that he or she will not. And that's, again, there's, even if that's 
more of a behind the scenes element. That is something that is so fascinating to me is just, well, when you're, especially, you know, I'll never forget the first time I was watching this. It was actually a very similar feeling to watching season three of Twin Peaks, which is the whole way through. I'm like, is he going to stick the landing? Is he going to pull this off? Is it going to lose steam in the third act? Is it going to fall apart in the 17th episode? Yeah. Yeah. Can he? And, and that became part of the thrill yeah. is a holy shit. Is, is he going to actually do this? He's going to pull this off. And I, and I remember watching this film and getting to the end. I was like, he's done it. He's done the rock and roll big sleep. He pulled it off. Yeah. And it's 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 not even really a detective movie at, at a certain point. But he it's still it, he's pulling this off. And you, you can't beat that. And, and while, I, again, I, I love I love every single one. Of, there's not a film of his I don't love, but I think they're. One of the, again, many reasons I can call this my favorite. So I don't think I ever had that sensation in any of his, Anderson's other films of sitting on the edge of my seat going, is he going to pull this off or is he going to fuck this up? Oh, my yeah, God, yeah. he's going to pull this off. Oh, my God. There's just something thrilling about that. Yeah. And going back to what you said, you know, when you, you went into this movie excited because you wanted to see a PTA movie and you were coming off the, the heat of the master. Had you read the novel going into the film? I had not. No, I'm actually reading the novel now. Finally, I kind of oh, wow. had it. I, I picked it up, you know, when it came out, and I didn't read it, um, even though on paper, you know, it's it looks just like my my thing exactly. But I'd read <laughs> some Pynchon in um, in college. I'd read The Crying a Lot, Forty Nine, and V, and I never really connected with with him. And then I knew some some Pynchon people, like who were really really deep deep into Pynchon and. And that kind of turned me turned me off uh, <laughs> to him, and you know, I just kind of had this bias against him. So, I think I also had this idea. Probably, I'm talking about when the novel came out, whenever it was, 2009. What was it? 2009. It was, 10? Novel was novel was nine. The movie was 14. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I probably also had some sense as a crime writer. Um, I think one of my least favorite things is when I think a literary writer is kind of slumming it in genre fiction and, and going to be like, Oh, I, I can do this. It's, it's easy. Um, and I, I'm wrong about that. I'm 100% wrong about that with this book, but I think I probably thought that at the time. Sure. Um, and that was also added to my, my bias against reading it. And then it just slipped away. And then I just kind of didn't, you know, I, I didn't see it as a prerequisite to, um, the movie at first, um, and and obviously I didn't see it as a prerequisite or a, or something I should do for these last five or six years either because I've just started. <laughs> I've just this this you know doing this prompted me to finally pick it up and be like, man, I should read this, and I'm 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 hundred pages into it and I'm I'm loving it, man. I think it's amazing. It's making me want to go back and read some other pension too, um, and it's amazing how I mean I, again I haven't finished it, but it's amazing how faithful of an adaptation it is on on some level um, how much of the dialogue especially is um straight from the book it's pretty it's pretty interesting to look at as an adaptation i think i mean I, i'll have more to think and say about that after i finish the book but um so yeah that's my experience with the book yeah, it's really striking how pta adapted it because he he did just scoop whole chunks of the yeah. book and I'm not criticizing. I mean, you're going to adapt a story. You're going to adapt the story. And if you're going to adapt a linguist like Pynchon, yeah, half, yeah. The, half the point of adapting Pynchon is it's not just the story and the screwball characters. It's, it's that language. And it's that that untrammeled, just 
you can't even it's almost impossible to read out loud unless you slow yourself down and look at yeah. every line 50 times but what what i i do think is interesting is how pta contextualizes and changes and how there will be a great line like there's a great line in uh today's scene uh which, right, which I'm is gonna the the boulevards of regret that yeah which is a different character in the book yeah, yeah. He, but i i love you you can totally see him reading the book and smiling yeah, and going yeah. yep yep post-it note boom <laughs> that's find a yeah. place find, there's and, so and, many of those lines man find a place whether and and some of I, again the reason why i think this this adaptation is so magical is that it, it, he didn't as, as, as much as you could just say, oh, well, he just, you know, looked at the book and typed it, typed it in the final draft. He specifically recalibrated it for cinema and he found ways yeah, to yeah. make this work. The fact that he invented a character, Sorlige, just right. so he could keep those those chunks yeah, yeah. Of, of, of text of third person omniscient narration just because he liked the way it sounded. It's like, well, yeah. we'll just make it. We'll just have we'll give it to, we'll give it to Liege. Let her say it. And yeah. which is, again, one of those things that you kind of sit there and you're like, well, that shouldn't work. You, you know that, you know, that's a, what's the, one of the first rules of modern screenwriting. They're always like, avoid the narrator. You don't you don't want to do a narrator. Yeah, yeah. Especially yeah. a narrator that in this case doesn't advance the plot in really any measurable way. I, I don't <laughs> know. I mean, I, the film would suffer in Sword Alicia's absence just because of the tone she brings. But I don't know that she actually specifically brings anything that we couldn't figure out on our own. And so he's literally got a narrator, which you're not supposed to do. And she's not, she never even provides exposition. She's more yeah. just kind of underlining little things for us, but it's because it's the beauty of pension. It's the beauty of his, of his prose. And you want to work that in. And that's the magic. One of the magic bits of this adaptation is. It's also the beauty of Joanna Newsom in that, in that, in that case, you know I mean? With that, I don't know uh, I don't know if that works with somebody else doing it on, on the same magical way, you know? There's, yeah, I mean, there is something about her voice. Like, I don't she's, know if you're, I don't yeah, know if you're a fan incredible. of her records, but like, just hearing her talk in that kind of that 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 fried out hippie girl voice. There's yeah. something so mellifluous about yeah. that. And what what is that ASMR? Like, I, I I kind of wish she would do. The audiobook is very good. And the, the guy that does the audiobook is very good, but I do wish there was an alternate universe where uh, Joanna Newsom read the uh, narrated the audiobook, and we just had yeah. the whole of Inherent Vice in her voice. I, I, if you're listening, Joanna, I know <laughs> no one's doing anything right now. You, you've got free time. You've got free time. Okay, back to the novel. Back to the film. Yeah, I know you're only about a hundred pages or so into the book, so you'll have to transpose what you know of the story, which is pretty much the same in the film. There's a couple of yeah, extra yeah. avenues and plot threads that are cut out for, for running time as a, as a crime novelist, how, how do you view what both pension and PTA do with essentially with the crime novel to tell this story? Because I, I, I feel like, I feel like as your, as your, as your work has grown uh, and you've published more and more works, I feel like, there's an expanded canvas of characters in your world. Like the, the cast yeah. list gets longer a little, right. it seems like it's a little longer with each time, a little bit more sprawling and, and you're kind of applying the, uh, these crime stories to this growing scope of characters, which is, I, I feel a little inherent vicey 
And so, yeah, I'm curious, how do you view how both of these men have approached the, the story of a crime novel? Well, I mean, you know, as a, as a writer, there's nothing I, I love more than, than character and, and, you know, scenes. Um, and I think, I think both the book and the, from what I can tell so far and the, and the movie obviously are, are built on, on those two things above all else. I mean, we meet so many and I love ensemble, you know, I love ensembles. My new book is an ensemble and, you know, I'm, huge Robert Altman fan, Alan Rudolph fan. And I think obviously, you know, PTA is, um, comes directly in that, in that line of, of filmmakers. Um, so, you know, I, I, that's, that's one thing I admire. Um, I love the, uh, the, the joy of naming in the book. Um, and in the in the movie, I love that he keeps that all these names, all these characters, <laughs> all these minor like Fatso Judson or you know whoever whoever like some minor character we don't ever even see that that you know Bigfoot mentions. Uh, you know, I love that stuff. But as a crime novel, and you know, I, I mean, I don't. I'm kind of an enemy of uh, of formula. I mean, I don't I don't like um, formulaic crime novels. I don't read a lot of mystery novels. Uh, you know, I like. I like character-driven crime stuff. I like, um, you know, stuff that could be perceived as kind of crime melodrama, I think. You know, I mean, that, so I'm all about place and character. And uh, both both the book and the movie kind of, you know, have that stuff in, in spades. So that's the driving force for me. Um, and, you know, I'm also, like, I love I love a crime novel that is, is or a crime movie that is unafraid of, shifting gears and going all over the place and you know and and being you know being unpredictable i mean i I value as a writer and as a reader and as a viewer i value unpredictability and weird choices above all else i think so um you know uh, both of these you know both the works are are rooted in that um you, you don't know where things are going you don't know what the main thread is you know you don't you don't know if the thing you thought was the main thread is the main thread after and i love that you know and and I love this gallery of of people that we meet. Um, I mean, that's a kind of great tradition of of, of some kind. Just you know, a, a main character who's kind of encountering all these other other characters along the way. Some of them small, who only pop in for a minute. Some of them a little <laughs> larger. I mean, that's that's my that's just my right up my alley so far. And yeah, that's alley. that's like pure Hammett and and Chandler. Yeah. That idea of our our detective who who lifts, he lifts the, the rug up and yeah, you yeah. see all of these things scurrying about. Some of them are good, some of them are bad, but all these people that you never knew were there, all these strange characters. Like, I, I, you know, we mentioned the big sleep. I think of like the weirdo book pornographers right, that, he, yeah. that were just like, that are running all over Sunset Boulevard that he had no idea where, that Marlowe had no idea were, were always there. Yeah. As that's the idea is that these people are always there. There's always an Aubrey three plea at the Chris yeah. Institute. And there's a Japonica Fenway running around out there and with Dr. Rudy Blatnoy DDS. There's all these, there's all these characters. I just, I just love saying those names. There's all yeah, these so, characters so out good. there, but the detective only just stumbles upon them when he, when he peeks and he brings a little bit of light into this dark corner yeah. and then they all start scurrying about. And there's, there's some, there's the, there, that, that is a, a trope and a bit of the lineage that I appreciate so much about this and it's it's funny that you say you know you 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 don't like you know a lot of heavy formula in in crime novels and crime films what i think is kind of amazing and and what works 
is instead of eschewing formula pension and and then Anderson by virtue of the adaptation does the same thing and it's not that he doesn't do anything formulaic it's that he does every formula right. available every yeah, formula yeah. in the detective book he throws into this book yeah, and, yeah. oh oh we're supposed to have we're supposed to have two cases that are yeah. that are separate but eventually we find instead of running parallel of the same case well, what if i do that with 14 cases all at once why not shits and giggles let's yeah. see what happens well, and that's, I, yeah, I love that too. And I mean, it's, it, oh, I've heard you kind of talk about it in relation to the naked gun, and you know, I mean, it, and it does have some things in common with that. I mean, that's what that's what something like the naked gun does, right? I mean, it brings in it's a parody of of a lot of stuff. And I don't think inherent vice is a parody at all, but I mean, it's doing that same thing, bringing in all these these tropes and and messing with them in some way. Exactly, and I and I love that about the book. I, I love the film more, but I do love that about the book. It's I don't think that uh, Pynchon's satirizing anything, but I think he is willing to have a laugh yeah, while yeah. genuinely writing a real detective story that has yeah. real heartbreak and sadness and darkness in it. But yeah. knows enough to, to know that you, you got to giggle a little now and then. Yeah, it's and, funny. I mean, it's a funny, it's a very funny movie, I think. But um, it's a funny book too so far. Oh, it's it's. I actually I actually think the book might be a little funnier. Really, uh, than the film, uh, it's but it's a colder funny. It's yeah. it's less like laugh out loud and more the kind of funny where you look at it and go, "That's good, that's smart, <laughs> that's really good." Yeah, you know, you were saying that uh, this this book is, or excuse the, the film, obviously, and the kind of the large ensemble crime narrative. You know, there's a lineage there to to people like Altman. And that uh, you know you're you're an Altman fan, and you can kind of feel his influence in your work as well. Uh, another person that I would want to mention, I would think for both, is uh, as you know, I was saying earlier, there's a there's a humanity that throbs at the center of PTA's work. Yeah, uh, and especially in my opinion, this film. And I've I found that same kind of humanity in your work. No matter how dark or gritty it gets, I nice. feel like there's this thread of humanism that's woven throughout that I think sometimes you miss in, in, in a lot of crime fiction. Uh, and so, so much so that it didn't really surprise me when your last book, uh, a friend is a gift you give yourself. It kicks off with the epigraph better to be a live dog than a dead lion, <laughs> which is a line from Jonathan Demme's screwball noir masterpiece, something wild. And yeah. not only is that a pretty good ethos for someone like Doc, who does manage to outlast a couple of dead lions in this movie, it also <laughs> highlights, you know, the, this kind of post Demi lineage that I think Anderson is a part of, but I also think you're a part of this. Oh yeah, this yeah. this this, this I mean. focus where the character is the thing, and not only is it the thing, it's your compassion for the character is the thing, even if that character is a kind of a piece of shit. Like yeah. you know, Bigfoot Bjornsson is not a good guy. Bigfoot Bjornsson right. is someone who knows his partner's been murdered and works for his murderers. But you, maybe less so in, in the book, but it's, but in Anderson's hands, Bigfoot becomes this, this sad, sorrowful character who, it's funny when he eats pot and he says, Moto Panikeku, but you also feel for him and, and yeah. you, or at least I do, and then you also kind of swell up a little bit even when he does something, when he does something a little heroic, even if it's a little cowardly, like, you know, when he's giving, he's, he's ripping off the fang so that Doc can then go confront the fang and leverage that heroine for, for, for Coy Harlingen later on. 
it's a cowardly heroism, but it's still kind of a heroism. Yeah. And that to me, you know, it's what I meant earlier when I said this is a people movie. Anderson's a people director. And yeah. it's it's just that it's not just that the characters are first. It's that their creators love for them is the thing that seems to come before all else. And yeah. again, which is a reason why I thought you would be a man to talk to about this world, because I feel that in your books as well. It's it's not just Thanks, the, your man. characters, but it's that it's what you feel about them, that that's what Thanks. drives everything. Thanks so much. Yeah, I mean, I think... Well, you gave me a bunch of compliments at the beginning. I had to say something. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that emotional core is... I mean, that's what it's all about to me. Yeah, and I love love Demi. So, I mean, Something Wild and Married to the Mob were um, the reason why I wrote that book, Friend is a Gift You Give Yourself, basically. I mean, I just wanted to write something like that, you know? And, um, and I think that, I think everything you said is, is spot on. Um, you know, I, and also with Anderson, I mean, I just watched, I watched, I watched Inherent Vice four times this week, but I also watched all of his other movies except for Boogie Nights again. Um, and you're not a uh, Boogie Nights fan or you've just seen it like 5,000 no, times. Like I, everyone else I, I am. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it, I'm glad I don't have to rank his movies. Uh, I like them all very much. Um, yeah, it's it's the one I've probably gone back to the least lately, um, but I, I am a fan of it. Um, but I just don't I I didn't get, have a chance to watch it. I just chose to watch Inherent Vice again instead. Um, but I, I rewatched Punch Drunk Love the other day, and I think that you know that and this to me are are the ones really where I, I feel that most of all. I think um, there's just this kind of tender. I mean, I feel it in all of them, but there's this tenderness um, that I just kind of connect with on some like just blood level. Um, and yeah, it is, I mean, it is, it is just, uh, uh, a love for, I mean, I feel it in heart eight too. I mean, I feel it in all of them, you know, I mean, he's so good at those. I mean, John C. Riley and heart eight and Magnolia, you know, that kind of hot heart on your sleeve kind of character, man, he's just the best at, and, um, I mean, I find it to be the kind of thing I think about when I'm sitting down to write, like, I want to do it like that. I want to get it right. Like, like he gets it right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think you're right, too. I, I think there's something I think there's a unique relationship to Punch Drunk and Inherent Vice in a way in that yeah. I think they're both films, which is kind of risky when films are meant to be these compressed. Meant to be we, we, we have come to expect films to be these kind of compressed 90 to 120 minute hard narratives. And yeah. here's a filmmaker who's just like, well, who, you know, who gives a shit if this makes sense? Don't you just love Barry Egan? Don't you just yeah. love Doc? Don't you just want to see him run around the valley? And like what yeah. he gets up to, and maybe he'll, maybe he gets the girl, maybe he doesn't get the girl, maybe the bad guy's gonna get him. Don't you just want to kind of see, like just yeah. kind of hang with him and see? Yeah. And, and I, I think that those two films, perhaps more than any of his others, do that, where they're just like, ah, plot. Yeah, it'll make sense if you really want it to make sense, and it does. But really, let's just let's just have an excuse to hang out with Doc Sportello or Barry and just see what they get yeah. up to. Yeah, totally. And one of the one of the things that always happens on this show, uh, in addition to me saying, oh, this is my favorite thing. Uh, one of the other things that always happens on the show, show is I'll pick something and I'll begin musing aloud as to whether or not this is the thing about the movie that kept people from loving it. And, you know, now that we mention this, it kind of makes me wonder if that that Demi-esque humanity and that that warmth of Anderson's towards his characters, if that in a way works against this type of film for some yeah. people. Because I think, you know, there are 
I think a lot of people were there was a, a chunk of people that came in just expecting, oh, it's going to be the Big Lebowski too, right? Yeah. And that's fine. And then there's these other group of people I think that maybe came in expecting, well, it's gonna it's gonna be more of his Boogie Nights, but still going to be his dark, long goodbye detective movie. And yeah. instead, it's just this lovingly sad LG for a broken time and broken people and broken relationships. Yeah. And while I want to say, well, what's what's not to love about that? I wonder if that's actually that that warmth in this context is kind of the thing that left people cold because they didn't know how to process that mixture of 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 humanism with what they expected to be a hard genre work. Right. I don't know if that yeah. makes any sense, but we're no, going to throw that out sense. there. I think that I mean, I think that's accurate. I mean, I think also people don't as much as I love it. When we were talking about it. I mean, I don't know that people respond terribly well to uh two tonal, you know, big, wild tonal shifts in, in works. Um, and I don't think, you know, I don't think Inherent Vice is as, as tonally wild as something wild. But, I mean, I do see, think they see, are. Everybody, see what he did? See? <laughs> I, do, <laughs> I do think it does. I mean, it does have elements of, like, you know, like Jade is, like, like you were talking about in the episode with um, Millie DiCirico. Like, uh, she's got a kind of screwball quality and there so there are i mean there are different elements at work and i think that probably yeah i mean i think probably people were confused i mean i don't want to use this word because i don't think it's a confusing movie at all i think it's uh it's a, i mean i think it's beautifully convoluted uh in all just all the ways i love but i don't think it's confusing but i think probably people weren't willing to do the work um also <laughs> on some level to you know you either had to be just somebody who could let it wash over you, or if you were looking to to understand it in a certain way, then I think you probably turned off. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you got you got to let it wash over the first time, and then maybe the yeah. second, and the third, then the fourth time, and then maybe we're on the fifth time. You can get out your notepad. <laughs> you can start going. Okay, Puck Beaverton works for Adrian. Yeah. Prussia. Adrian Prussia works for the Golden Fang. Golden Fang wanted to get so rid of many Bigfoot's names. partner. So good. Yeah. And that's the other thing. So many names, so many names. I love, but, I love that, man. You know, I mean, that's one of my favorite things to do is just throw names around. You know, I mean, it's just, it's so much fun. Well, really, quick digression. When you name a character, do you just mash two names that come out of the ether? Do you, do you get the old, the old phone books and just put a finger down on page <laughs> three hundred and another page, a finger down on page six hundred, and you combine those names together? Uh, in the beginning, I used a lot of names of kids I went to school with. I would take like a last name from one and a first name from the other. And I was looking for some kind of match that worked. Now I use, um, I use obituaries a lot uh, from there's a funeral parlor in my neighborhood in Brooklyn where I just kind of, I look at the death notices and I see, I see what I can use. <laughs> well, geez, this episode just took a turn between, between my disease joke at the beginning. And now this heavy, Sorry, heavy stuff, heavy stuff. <laughs> okay. So, well, first off, before I move on, I wanted to say I actually think that this is as tonally jarring in a way as Something Wild was. Uh, and if, for those who haven't seen Something Wild, it's a great gear shift movie where about halfway through what you thought was a very, very specific genre and tone to this to a film whiplashes into something else entirely that grows yeah. increasing or increasingly different from the the first hour. Well, I, I think that this film does that does the same thing. I think 
Um, what maybe makes it in a weird way less noticeable is because in something wild, it happens once. There's a yeah. clear demarcation right, in something right. wild where it goes from screwball, uh, romance, road movie to just thriller uh, with, with jokes. <coughs> right. Whereas with this, it will go from heavy kind of romantic melancholy longing to all out screwball marty short running with his with his pants down <laughs> then and then like i said we'll whiplash back to one of the most kind of complex and agonizing sex scenes in cinema and, and kind of hard to watch not because of any kind of like violence or anything but just the 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 deep well of dark emotions that have to be at play and then it jumps back to jokes and bigfoot eating pot and yeah. it, I think it's because there's not one demarcated moment, but it just it's almost every scene. You're like, well, is this going to be the joke scene? Is this going to be a panakeku scene? Is this yeah. going to be like plot exposition or is this going to be like some this is going to be the heavy shit? Yeah. And it just it just it's just like it's like a Rubik's Cube of a film where every scene you to go back to what we were saying. You have no idea what the next one is going to be once you start. And I think that's a hard to go yeah. to go back to. Hey, maybe this is why people don't like it. I think that's a hard thing to ride for people. Right. I think you, something like something wild, you you give it a pass because you can you go, oh, I see what he's doing. The first hour was this, the last hour was that. Right, right. I might yeah, not, yeah. I might not like it. I might not get it, or I might, I might not like it, but I get it. I see, I see yeah. he's putting two things together. But then, advice, you you just you can't see what it is until it's over, and by then you're so dazed yeah. from what just happened that you, I think a lot of people did walk away going, no, I don't, yeah. I don't know what the hell that was. <laughs> But um, one of the things I don't accept from those people is when they say, oh, well, it didn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. There's, there's nothing hold, nothing holding this story together. And the reason I say that, the reason I say that is because I'm going to do that uh, that other thing I do. Because speaking of a broken time and broken people and broken <laughs> relationships that we just mentioned a minute ago, something else I've caught myself doing on this show is we'll have we'll have a specific scene. And I'll remark in awe that in this single scene, it's as if, Almost all of the things that make up Inherent Vice, its themes, its plot threads, its meanings, they all converge on one another in this incredible knot of elements that define the film. All in one scene. It's, it's, uh, it, and it's, so it's so strange to me because, and because that, it, that keeps happening over and over and over again. It's so strange to me that some people find the film incomprehensible because it's starting to feel as if now that I'm really, really just watching this film on a scene by scene by scene yeah. basis, it's <laughs> it's as if nearly every scene in the film gathers all of its elements and says, "Look, here they are. This is what's going on. This is what's happening. This is what the movie is about." And as I sit here talking to you, teetering on the brink of self-parody by doing this again and saying it's all in this scene, I have to say. It's all in this scene that we're going to talk about today. You know, some might, some might find this the sequence a little oddball and nondescript because it is, once again, just two people talking in another white-walled room. But uh, Clancy Sherlock's arrival in Doc's office, it, it brings together all of these disparate elements. She brings in the murder of Glenn Sherlock, which we haven't really talked about for nearly an hour in the film. Uh, it brings back the disappearance of Mickey Wolfman, which had been kind of sidelined as the Coy Harlingen uh, plot was ascending. It And it brings those elements into the same room with Bigfoot, whom she also mentions, how he's kind of curiously taking an interest in what Doc is doing. 
It brings in Mickey's backstory with drugs and giving away all his real estate. It brings in Puck Beaverton. It even mentions a boat that might be the golden thing, which then steers us back because it's a it's the boat towards the Harlingen case. It's this scene right before the film's midway point. This is the first time that ever in the film that Anderson overtly hints that all of these elements are all springing from the same source. It's all the same case. And I don't know what you're supposed to do with all that information, William, but I just had to say, (laughs) because I do, there's a handful of scenes in this film that I think they're the cell phone. They're the cell phone scenes. They're the scenes when you're showing this to friends. It's the scene where they are, they're like, they start scrolling. They start scrolling on their phone and lost them. And I think it happens with uh, Doc and Penny on the, the bench. And I think it happens with Doc and Hope Harlingen in, in the Harlingen breakfast nook. And it happens here. And Typically, these are scenes of heavy exposition. But again, what's so magical to me, uh, to use that word again, and so stunning to me is how each, and I can't think of another film that does this, where nearly every single scene gathers together everything the movie is about and reiterates it in a way that you never yeah. quite feel like it's being spoon-fed to you, but all of the elements, everything that, that builds to what Inherent Vice is, is sitting right here in front of us in this sequence in this doctor's office. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And this one, I mean, it was, um, when I first watched it, it was right off the bat one of my favorite scenes. And um, I don't, it wasn't because of that. It wasn't because of the information that was coming across. It was just, again, you know, just a, a feeling, um, mostly about, uh, the actress, um, Michelle Sinclair, who is, a, a former adult film star, Belladonna. Um, and I, I just thought, you know, I mean, I thought her performance in that scene really just kind of struck me in a way that you know this movie is packed wall to wall with just incredible performances and two that stand out to me the most are joanna newsom's and and michelle sinclair's the the two kind of non-actors um of the group and and there's something just there's something so unique about her line delivery there's something so unique about their exchange um it's a it's a scene that does you know kind of run the gamut tonally too i mean it's a funny scene it's a strange scene um it's uh it's a sad scene it ends with that you know one of my favorite lines in the movie um you know so i mean it's just it's it's all over the place and it's just this really and like you said i think it does come almost exactly well not quite but close to the midpoint of the movie um and it's this really I don't know, just it, it felt like when I first saw it, it just felt like a key scene. It felt like, if not the key to the movie, you know, you know, one of the one of the most important scenes up to that point in the movie. Um, yeah. And I've continued to feel about feel that way about it, watching it again and again. And and not to devalue its meaning to you, but because I, I do think you're you are right. And I and I did just go on that huge laborious lugubrious look at all these words i'm using i'm talking <laughs> to a novelist uh, uh uh that that speech i went on i think you're I, I i did that to point out that yeah this is 
one of those key scenes. But what I that, that, that unlocks so much of the film's purpose in terms of theme, in terms of character, in yeah, terms of uh, mystery. Yeah. But what's what's crazy to me about it, not to devalue it, is that that's when you look at it on a scene by scene basis, nearly every scene in this movie. Oh yeah, yeah, is the key that unlocks the movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you don't see it until you've seen the movie 50 fucking times. But if you will yeah. give it that, if you do that, then you go back and you go, oh my God, the level of madness and genius that both Pynchon and Anderson had to have had to be able to layer and lattice all of these elements together, to cats yeah. cradle them together so that if some insane person like myself decided to just break it down sequentially and do a show about it, that, that you could actually do that because yeah. every scene is the skeleton key that goes, oh, this is why Bigfoot does that, and this yeah, is yeah, why yeah. Doc feels that. It's incredible. And on that note, that self-justifying <laughs> note in, in which I, I, I announced that's why this this podcast exists, because Thomas Pynchon wanted it. He wrote it this way. <laughs> we're going to watch the scene, and we're going to come back. We'll chat about it. Who are you? Clancy Sherlock. Glenn, Charlock, sister, sister, <laughs> I'm so sorry about your um, brother. Glenn was a shit, bound to have his series canceled sometime. That don't keep me from wanting to know who his killer is. Did you talk to the uh, police? They talked to me, some smart ass named Bigfoot. He seemed less concerned with Glenn's murder. And Mickey Wolfman's disappearance. But he's a fan of yours, all right. Said you might be able to help. Did he now? Did you hear the Wolfman's working on a way to give away all his money? Well, I don't want to do that. He was on a guilt trip, man. Doing tons of acid and peyote and just got to a point. He felt bad about making people pay for all those cheap, ugly houses of his. You gonna keep holding on to that tank or are you gonna marry it? He wanted to build this big place out in the desert where people could come and live for free, called the Arapentimento. Uh-huh. Uh, well, what's that mean again? Spanish for sorry about that. Um, you know, maybe your your brother was just, um, you know, doing his job to try to prevent, um, you know, whoever was from putting the snatch on, on Mickey. That's way too fucking sentimental. Sounds like somebody objected to Mickey's big giveaway. Mm. The uh, wife and business partners. Um, Puck Beaverton. He had the duty that day to guard Mickey. Changed shifts with Glenn at the last minute. Pat Beaverton. Interesting fellow here. He's a major league asshole. Mm, sound like you dated. Him and his roommate. Two at a time? That's my preference. Well, uh, you know where I might be able to find this, uh, Puck fellow? Dropped out of sight after Glenn's murder. Set sail. Set <laughs> sail? Like on a boat? I don't know, maybe. 
If you find him, you let me know? Well, um, perhaps we should continue this conversation someplace else. Need uh, contact information from you? Now, Clancy, did uh, Glenn ever mention one of Mickey's ladies? Goes by the name of Shasta. Girl's gone missing? That's her. Yeah. She was in love with him. Deeply in love. Oh, Shasta and Doc lived together for a short while. Oh. Bummer. Well. As someone who's been down this particular exit ramp, you can only cruise the boulevards of regret so far. And you gotta get back up onto the freeway again. Mm. Good luck. As you were saying before the scene, before anything else, we got to talk about Michelle Sinclair as Clancy Sherlock, because as you said, it, it hadn't occurred to me in, in in quite this context. But you, when you were like, it's these two non-actors that actually give two of the more fascinating performances in the film. You're you're exactly right, and I don't know if it's because. It's n- no one in this in this movie feels actorly. No one feels like they're doing no, the no, John yeah. Lovitz capital A acting. No. And yet there's a perhaps it's back to what we were talking earlier. There's just that because they're not professionals and maybe it's because we know they're not professionals or maybe it's just the vibe they bring. There's that raggedy. This could fall apart at any minute because they're yeah. not doing it, quote unquote, right. They're not right. doing it. And you can, and you see it in this scene. You see that Joaquin is working on a level that Sinclair is not, but Sinclair is kind of on her own place that, that Joaquin is not. A level of like unrehearsed, just kind of, I won't, I won't call her flat, but she's with Joaquin. You don't even see him. Right. You right. see, you see Doc. Like he's he's doing his full on De Niro. I'm immersed, and I don't think that that's what she's doing. And yet, what she's doing works so insanely well this just kind of smirking heavy-lidded sensuousness and charm that it's it's one of those elements to this movie that shouldn't work but not only does it work it makes the entire scene better yeah no i I think that's totally true and there's a there's an essay i stumbled across i hadn't read it before today um the writer's name is ben Sachs. um and it was in the Chicago this is Reader. The piece in the Chicago Reader. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna talk about this. I got yeah. thoughts. I um, I, I did think. I mean, I think what he said about um, about this scene being something of a key to Pynchon's language and and using Pynchon's language is really interesting. Um, that hearing her say these things that are kind of, you know, just very i mean like his series was bound to get canceled sometime and you know the, the, <laughs> these these really these lines that she delivers in this in this kind of 
stiff in a beautiful way. Um, yeah, it's never awkward, but it's not. No. It's almost got that, you know, we throw Kubrick around. It's almost got that kind of Kubrick thing where you're like, that's the line reading you chose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that really weird, stiff kind of alien. Like, that's out of 181 takes, that's the one you yeah. go with, huh? Huh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And there's something I love about it. And she is. I mean, I, I think she is so alien in that scene. That's a, that's a good word. She's very, you know, you just see kind of blockbuster actor after blockbuster actor um just kind of doing doing just incredible work and then she comes in and it's a different register and it's a different thing and, it, and there's something so raw and and tender about it uh i think you know that, that that's just the, the kind of power of the scene is 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 all about that to me there's at a, some level there's a freshness to her yeah and i don't know how else to say it it's it's just that and it, and that's not to imply that anyone else here is doing dull work. No, you know? no, no, not at it's all. It's just it's a it's a, a different type of energy. It's you almost you can almost feel like maybe underneath it she's a little nervous. Like yeah, yeah. and maybe I'm projecting because I know that this was her first her first film role as Michelle Sinclair and yeah, not yeah. an adult performer. So I don't know if maybe I'm I'm projecting a little onto that, but I do think that there is just something She's vibrating at a slightly different frequency than everybody else in the yeah. movie. And for whatever the reason may be, it works and it works so well and it needs to work more so than some of the other random characters that she could have played in this film for a very specific reason, which is that, you know, while she's far more low key than Hong Chow is as yeah. Jade, Sinclair is like saddled with and absolutely dominates a massive chunk of exposition yeah with the same kind of low-key attitude that the rest of the film jade aside approaches exposition she just yeah, kind of yeah. leans her head back against a wall <laughs> lowers her eyelids a little bit takes in some laughing gas and then just lets loose yeah <laughs> with with like five minutes of just like i'm here okay we're in we just we just clocked the first hour of this movie. Let me connect every single one of these dots. All of this stuff that you forgot about. Remember that dead that dead uh, biker at the beginning of the movie? I'm a yeah. sister. <laughs> oh, and he you know he died because uh, he was there for Mickey, but you know, but you know it's supposed to be Puck Beaverton instead of him. But Puck disappeared, <laughs> and there's and then there's a ship, and she's doing all of this shit. And again, much like Sorlige being a narrator, and you're not supposed to have a narrator. It's funny this shouldn't work and yeah. i'm and I, as a novelist I, I i know you know this that you're not supposed to put this much straight information into yeah, yeah. into a character's head out of a character's mouth at once and it just keeps happening in this movie yeah. uh, <laughs> and, and and you know i'd never really thought of it until i was prepping for this scene you know i always talk and talk and talk and i've always thought oh my god look at hong chow look at how she just is just she's like an acrobat with exposition yeah. it's like effortless to her any almost any other actor it would kill them regardless of their skill level exposition is the worst but she turns it into an art and you forget that she's even giving it right no one else can do that but then you watch this scene it's a totally different energy but that's exactly what sinclair does yeah. and i i find that fascinating that he would the pta would be willing and again, it's it's it goes back to that thing that could fail at any moment, but he's got that trust in his instincts that he would put that in the hands of someone who is relatively untested. 
totally yeah. well relatively up until this point totally untested with like a narrative feature film and yet she's so she's just so cool she's so cool and yeah. charming like she's she's exactly the person that you would be like you would fall in love with at a bar you'd see across the yeah. room she wouldn't talk to you you wouldn't talk to her but you'd leave that night always <laughs> regretting that you, you you didn't shoot your shot because yeah. there's just something unbelievably laid back and cool about her energy and almost nobody else in the film has that and she brings that and that's incredible yeah no, i think that's i think that's spot on um yeah i mean it, it is it, it's uh there's there's that interview that you can find with her. You can't find a lot about this scene. I mean, I don't think people have talked about or, or written about this scene much. But there's an interview out there from um, from right after the film came out, I think, in Vice, where she talks about about being brought in. And I think, I mean, I haven't gotten to that part in the book yet, but I know there's more stuff with Clancy and there's a a, a sex scene that was filmed with with um, with uh, the Tara character, yeah, and was cut. Uh, and, you know, I think, and she didn't, she wasn't too, too down with that scene initially because she was trying to transition out of, out of adult films and didn't want that to be her first thing that she did. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, she just brings this, yeah, this confidence, this swagger that is, is really otherworldly. I mean, I kept thinking, I mean, I don't want to sound pretentious, but when I first saw her in the movie, I thought of um, like a Robert Brisson movie. I thought she had this kind of quality that you find in his movies, uh, you know, or even like uh, like the Passion of Joan of Arc. Like you know, she had this like silent wow, you... film face. You know, I mean, it's just like no, she, she does. This... She has those features that just yeah. There are certain features that like when you see them in a movie from 1910, you're like, oh, that's a 1910 person. That's what yeah, I know yeah. they look like. I know this sounds like this is the stupidest sounding thing in the world, but no, you're exactly, she has that face. Like she, she has does. that kind of face. Um, and, and maybe, you know, maybe that help. I mean, maybe that helps with the, with the, you know, the, the line delivery and stuff too. I mean, that you're just so, I mean, there's, this is a film that's so heavy with close-ups, and, and um, I mean, you know, the, the camera's close on her that whole time and she's got this transfixing, you know, kind of late twenties, early thirties kind of look about her with that, like Louise Brooks kind of hair. I mean, you know, she, <laughs> yeah. she's, you know, it's a, it's a, com just a compelling performance. I think um, she does so much with her eyes, with her mouth, you know, it's just like, it's all there. It's like, um, it's a, it's very just, it's hard to look away from her. And I don't know, and I don't know if this is this is reaching in any way, but I mean, obviously, because she was an adult film actor, and so much of that, so much of that job is to be watched, to be seen. Yeah. Like everything you do, it, it, that, the things that she does with her face, I find to be transfixing, in a way that. I, there aren't a lot of other actors in this film where I'm just like, God, the way like the way she tilts her head and the yeah, way yeah. she'll move her eyes. And then there's this this moment where she will she leans forward and kind of puts her chin down low to like really emphasize. And like and I found myself like Doc just leaning forward without even realizing yeah, it, just yeah, pulling yeah. forward. You have to see what she's trying to show us. There's some there's there's even even for someone who is not moving above the neck almost at all in her entire scene 
there's something physically transfixing about the movements that she chooses and yeah. the way she tilts her head. And it's stuff that you shouldn't be doing when you're on camera. The way she leans her head back so you can't quite see all of her features. You can't quite make out her entire face. It's so kind of antithetical to to the camera placement. And yet it, it totally works. Yeah. And also she gets, you know, shout out for the very pension-esque in-joke that, uh, that uh, Clancy Sherlock enjoys dating two minute once. As apparently this is Belladonna, uh, Belladonna, or Michelle when she was Belladonna, was famous for group sex and multiple partners. <laughs> oh, I didn't and so know that, that. So that's a, like a nice bit of like Pinchonian pop culture reference there, which is apparently one of the reasons. Uh, I guess she's good friends. Uh, you, I think it was in this the same interview that you read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joaquin Phoenix nice. is a buddy of hers, and he said he's like, I, I think there's a character that you would be good for here. <laughs> that like is something that you would appreciate. Yeah. Uh, now. Going back to things that we've both read, there is something that I wanted to talk to you about that was in the Chicago Reader. It was this piece called Pornography Remains, a Major Influence on Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, that's really, really getting to the point there in that title. Um, (laughs) There's been this growing thread that's been building through the last last handful of episodes, I think, and, and and and. Part of the crux of it is Doc's culpability in all of this vis-a-vis how he has always viewed Shasta. And I don't know if I agree with everything that I read in that reader piece, but I thought that there were some really interesting things. And, and the thing that really grabbed me was the author, you know, he lays out that, you know, in posits that PTA's movies take place in a world designed by and for emotionally stunted straight men, which that sounds a lot like the real world to me, but okay. Uh, <laughs> and that Anderson's protagonists undoing is often tied to their adolescent notions of sex and power. And for a long time, you know, that never, it never felt like something like that would apply to inherent vice, but the more I've been watching it and the more I've been talking about it with people with other points of view, I have kind of started I've started to notice extra layers of complexity to Doc's character that he's maybe yeah. not. I don't think he's a bad guy at all. I don't think he's a villain at all, but he's not just the loyal, lovable dog that I kind of viewed him as the first billion times I watched the movie. Yeah, and yeah. so he's saying that, you know, all of Anderson's protagonists are undone by their adolescent notions of sex and power. And so, so too it goes, according to him and Inherent Vice, both the book and the movie where rich, conservative, older men poison the free love movement by exploiting it for personal satisfaction. And there's this one he calls tragic development. That's it's, it's only peripheral in the book, but it's, as he writes, central to Anderson's film. And, and that is Doc coming to realize that he, he can be just as possessive and just as selfish as the establishment figures that he claims to oppose. And the writer really points at this scene, not so much the, the sex scene, but which is what I was kind of, which I think this theme has kind of been building to is that sex scene. But the writer points to this moment where, uh, with, uh, because he points out the Sinclair scene kind of anticipates that sex scene as, as Doc, kind of against his better judgment, starts to fall for what he writes is a fascistic sex freak. <laughs> I mean, I guess she is. She's dating two Nazis. 
I wouldn't call her a freak. Um, but, you know, it's, he writes that Doc, against his better judgment, starts to fall for a fascistic sex freak. And the punchline of the scene has Clancy slapping him hard across the face to jolt him from both his laughing gas-induced stupor and any dumb ideas that might be forming in his head. And this idea that Doc can be just as possessive and selfish as the forces he stands against, I think it's... I think it is something you could argue does exist. And I think it is something you could argue is what is exploding in the reunion scene with Shasta later in the film. And if that, again, if that is the case, you could read it as first really rearing that element, rearing its head here in this moment, in this scene, which would then make this even more of a skeleton key scene than, than I, I even thought before, or, you know what, maybe doc is just a cartoon skunk chasing girls. That's, that's yeah. the thing about this movie. <laughs> but where, where do you stand on that, that that article on the reader and how it kind of frames this scene as the prologue to that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I hadn't I hadn't really thought about this scene in that way till I read that piece. And I, like I said, I just read that piece today for the first time. Um, I mean, I think it I think it makes sense on on some level. I mean, I think definitely the the sex scene works in that in that way for me. On, on some level um i just watched i mean this isn't really like a double feature recommendation or anything but i just so happened to have rewatched um carl franklin's one false move last oh, week god that's such a good movie it's so good now and i, I kind of had an inadvertent double feature with that and this one of the times i, I rewatched this and and i i started to see some something in common i thought between bill paxton's character in that movie and doc in this movie because there are there there are moments with bill paxton's character in one false move where this turn happens where you see him as kind of this yokel sheriff character for a while and he's pie-eyed and you know just kind of anxious to help and then he has these kind of dark moments where you 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 know he he uh he uses the n-word um in front of a, an African-American detective uh, from Los Angeles and they're in Arkansas. He's a, he's a sheriff. And, you know, you, you start to see these other things kind of show up about him that, you know, this, oh, this guy is, there's a darkness to this character. Um, and the movie doesn't really go overboard with trying to examine that, um, you know, to its credit, I think, you know, I mean, I think that's part of what makes it such a great movie is it just kind of lets that, this lets who he that, is. Yeah, let's that darkness be like this. Okay, this guy's not who you thought he. And then there's I won't spoil the plot if people who are listening haven't seen it. But there's a, an even kind of you know bigger secret about this character that you discover later. And you know I mean I think I thought about that um, in relation to to Doc um, and especially the sex scene. But I guess in you know in, in retrospect this scene too on some level that this this is a character who is is I think. I think he's fighting with that. You know, I mean, I think he's fighting with, with his own darkness, and in that scene, in the sex scene, um, you see it kind of come come out in that, in, in a way that he doesn't usually let it come out or, or something. I don't know. No, no, I, I think, if... I think you're, on, I think you're onto it. Like, I, I, I think that's exactly it, uh, or I'm beginning to. And I will say that, yeah. Know, I did not at the beginning of this show, not this show, this episode, but this show in general. And it's it's something that's grown the more I talk to people, and the more points of view I'm absorbing that it does seem like it, it's interesting that you mentioned one false move, because, again, I'm not let's 
who knows? Because maybe it'll finally be released on Blu-ray sometime yeah. soon. So I don't want to spoil it for anybody. But let's. There is a. There are some revelations towards the end of the film that kind of recontextualize even Paxton's tre- character's treatment and expectations of the women in his life. Let's yeah, say. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And I do think that that is something you could tie directly to Doc. Is that this person who does mean well. But there is a kind of blindness like you there is maybe this growing sense and and it's it doesn't it's not a malignance, but it is a flaw. And that's what's so great again about the treatment of these characters. It's always done with with humanism and empathy. But so he's Doc's not made a villain because of this, but it is a problem. I think the more you watch the film, you see this flaw in Doc where you get the sense that he is kind of one of those guys that just wants to tell Shasta. You know, if you could just behave this certain way, we'd be happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, Doc is, you know, because of his 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 lifestyle and his ethos, he's never going to be the guy to say that. Right. Uh, and not that not that him saying it should would be a good thing. Like you know, you you shouldn't say that. But I think that that he does. There's some part of him that does just want to say, just be the girl in the 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 flower print bikini bottom and the country joe in the fish t-shirt with the too long yeah, hair yeah. just be her be who i think shasta Faye is and everything would be so much easier if you would and it's kind of interesting what shasta does to the men in her life in that or i won't say what she does what they kind of what they what happens to them when they interact with her which is that it's kind of ironic that Mickey, who's seen as kind of this ultimate Beverly Hills conservative capitalist, when he falls in love with Shasta Faye, he starts doing drugs and yeah. renou- renouncing capitalism and becoming a hippie. <laughs> and then Doc, in his really his big major scene with her at the near the end of the film, he becomes more like a Mickey Wolfman. The yeah. way the way the way that Shaft describes Mickey as being kind of cold and, and sexually aloof and controlling, and that is exactly what happens to Doc in in that scene. And it's kind of interesting how she bring, you know, for a film that has so many kind of doppelgangers and, and funhouse mirrors yeah. uh, uh, versions of characters looking at each other, whether it's Doc and Coy or Doc and Bigfoot, through Shasta, you even have this kind of mirroring of Doc and Mickey where they. They're kind of going in the opposite directions, and they briefly cross each other for a moment. Yeah, yeah. And and we're we're so and and because we're now apparently making a drinking game of keeping track of every time I do the same thing per episode. We're now doing that thing where I'm supposed to say, "Oh, we're so far afield from our scene." <laughs> uh, but one other, I, I, since we're talking about it, and it's what I love is the 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 treatment of something like this. It's never done with a heavy hand. And it's never underlined or pointed out like Paxton. Yeah. Like, one false move never goes, we should condemn Paxton's right. character. I think the movie trusts that the person who's watching it has a, enough of a moral compass to go, oh, well, that's fucked up. Yeah. And I, I, I think that, that PTA trusts us with the same. But I also think there is that love for these characters where he's like, look, I'm not going to make a, a movie crucifying Doc because he's maybe not the best boyfriend. No, yeah. the, the most well-adjusted, non-toxically male person in the world. But the dude's got problems and he's got problems with the way he views or what he expects from the women who aren't sort of liege that yeah. comes into his life. And maybe it's saying something that um, one of the few age appropriate women that he doesn't kind of 
uh, let's have a conversation, uh, is, is the one that is potentially in his head, that, that is potentially right. not even real. Uh, but uh, there's also, I just wanted to, again, because we're going far afield, why not? I just want to shout out to that great scene with Mickey Wolfman, uh, Eric Roberts, because if you want to talk about empathy and yeah. portraying your supposed villain with, with, with just an almost cosmic level of humanism, the, the level of sadness and heart in that moment, it, it always, yeah. it always knocks Actually, me Actually, I, I watched it again today, and that scene, that scene about made me cry today. Where <laughs> that, that line, that line where he's like, I didn't know, I don't know, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but he says something like, I didn't know shelter should be free. Yeah, um, and the yeah regret, it's a really touching scene. Yeah. The regret, or to quote, to quote Magnolia, the goddamn regret. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, that 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 feeling of I I, I yeah I didn't know and, and and it's never a condemnation of him as a character. It's just no. we see that you know his life is ruined and that's that's kind of enough. Yeah. Uh, oh god, you oh, oh boy, hang on. We're gonna record that. We're gonna record that scene after this. You're gonna guest on that <laughs> scene now. Uh, but uh, and again, all of this in a scene that I feel like is relatively unpopular. I feel like this is this is the cell phone scroller scene. But there is so much yeah of this, and if we could roll our way back from that sub digression which i think has some validity I, I again i'm not crazy about some of the points made in that article and i do not think she is a fascistic sex freak but i <laughs> I, I do think that there is something interesting there about the doc's you know you could again argue that maybe he's just being like the peppy Le Pew charming cad or there could be something there about doc's expectation of when he meets a beautiful woman. Yeah. What do you expect? It could very well be why this scene ends. This scene ends the way it begins in the book. In the right. book, this scene begins with him spraying that deodorizer all over himself and his office because it smells like pot. And I've always wondered if it, it it's kind of an odd moment to have a mini Ripperton's Lafleur's uh, crescendo with Doc spraying yeah. himself. <laughs> but I wondered if that was like a little joke about how he couldn't figure out why this woman didn't like him. And maybe it's because he stank. Like he's, you see him smelling himself. It's like he can't understand why she didn't fall for his charms and why she didn't like succumb and go like, oh yeah, let's go to let's talk about this over dinner. And I wonder if that's both meant to be a little jokey, but also maybe a little a little arrow at Doc. And again, <laughs> his weird expectations of women that like he can't quite get why why she wouldn't dig him, why she wouldn't be interested in him, the way he can't maybe quite understand why Shasta didn't stick around. Yeah, I don't know. There's something about that that end of that scene though. I mean, it also feels like. It feels like the first scene of the movie to me in the way it, it, it kind of rolls into the music and it, it feels like this kind of, I don't know, pause point in the, in the, in the, in the narrative. Um, yeah, I just, I love that ending. And I mean, I think that, um, I mean, the ending of that scene, and I think there's, there's obviously Anderson put a lot on that scene because he gave that, um, that, Boulevard of Regret line to Clancy instead of of Hope, right? And it's Hope in yeah. the book who says that. As that someone like... who's as someone who's been down this particular exit ramp, you can only cruise the boulevards of regret so far. Then you got to get back onto the freeway again. I mean, that seems like I mean, especially since the the movie is so much about and the story is so much about hope and and um, 
reuniting that family. I mean, it seems like a very important decision to give this line to Clancy instead of letting Hope have it. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what his thinking was there, why he chose to, to switch that, but I think it's a really fascinating choice um, and, and really, to me, adds to the weight of this scene. Yeah, you know, I, I've thought about that too. You know, every time he... Because there's really no reason for Hope not to say that line. No, it, yeah. Contextually, it, it fits her story. How I've reasoned it to myself, and I this is one of those... And here, this is another thing I'll always do in the show, but this is one of those moments where I can imagine, like, if, if I said this to PTA, he'd be like, oh, no, I didn't mean it for the... I mean, whatever excuse <laughs> you have for this to do... No, nah, I wasn't thinking that at all. It just, yeah, felt, yeah. It just felt right. But um, I feel it like... It does the, feel right. It does, but I think the reason it feels right is I think... You know, I joke there's, yeah, there's like 14 plots in this movie. And it's more like there's like 14 like subplots that are girded on to these <laughs> two main plots. It's Shasta and Wolfman and everything that springs forth from that, like the Sherlock right. murder and whatnot. And then there's the Harlingens. And they're all bound together by the Golden Fang, all these like little tendrils of Fang subplots that interconnect. We actually spoke on the last episode with uh, film critic Brendan Hodges and it's the episode where, or it's a scene where Doc brings the picture of the Last Supper at the Topanga Canyon party to Bigfoot. And he's like, what do you think yeah, about yeah. this? What is this? Come on. And Bigfoot agrees to take it on. And he says, you know, uh, you know, sometimes it's just about doing the right thing. And if you view the Harlingen case as kind of the, the A plot, the, the narrative backbone, you know, of, of the film. Sometimes it's just about doing the right thing. That That's really, we were talking about how that is kind of the definitive line of that thread of the film. Yeah. It's just about, in times of craziness, you know, Drew McQueenie mentioned this in his episode so eloquently, the Chick Planet episode, which is, you know, in times of utter chaos and madness, sometimes all you can do is just a tiny good, a small kindness. And, yeah. some, and as Bigfoot says, it's just about doing the right thing because it's the one thing in front of you you can actually accomplish. And I agree. And I, I think it's that really is kind of the the er theme. But I also think that PTA is extraordinarily entranced by and drawn into the Shasta and Doc story, the love story, the why we why couldn't we make this oh, yeah. work story? Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of the sub movie that runs runs alongside the entirety of the above ground plot. I don't know why I'm making this like a Morlocks versus <laughs> Eloy metaphor, but run with me. It's better than the, the disease when I started off with earlier in the episode. Uh, and so if that's the case, if, if the Harlingen, if the catchphrase of the Harlingen half of this film is sometimes it's just about doing the right thing. I really do think that the, the, the part of this film, and so much of it is, the part of this film that's so obsessed with the inherent vice of time and what it takes from us, how we cannot ensure against time, and that we're going to lose the people we love and the things we love and the relationships that we love. I think that it's important that you have a character in that storyline express this line. And if Shas is not going to do it, and she's hardly in the movie, you need someone else to. And I think... yeah. It's my very, very, very long-winded way of saying you can't have in this version of the story 
you can't have Hope Harlingen say you can only cruise the boulevards of regret so far, then you got to get back right, on the right. way again, because that's not her story. That's not her tale. Her yeah. tale is not about what gets taken from us. Her tale is about the one good thing you can do to give something back, to give that thing back. Doc's story and Shasta's story is about time and loss. And I actually think it makes so much more sense to have a character on their half of the fence be the one to give him that perfect arm slap that is just so... Again, yeah. I'm going to imagine that Michelle Sinclair did that. That wasn't scripted. <laughs> There's something so right and human about that. But she's the one that says, "You got dude, you got to let go at a certain point. Yeah. <laughs> everything's going to get taken away. And you just have to learn to drive that way and drive with it. Yeah. You have to have her say it. You can't have Hope say it. That's my yeah. theory anyway. No, that, that, sounds, that sounds spot on to me. <laughs> I'm glad you validated that. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, and, and so, you know, I love that. And, and we were saying earlier how you, you felt like, uh, you know, this is such like a weirdly central scene that even the, the music is unto itself. I mean, we don't have to go too deep on it. But again, I got to say, you watch this film on a scene by scene basis. Every little sequence in this film feels like a short film. And yeah, I just want yeah. a brief shout out to the sound design in this sequence in which you got to really listen sharp. But you have KHJ, any Once Upon a Time in Hollywood fans out there, you have a companion KHJ yeah. film here. You got KHJ playing in the background. You got The Association's Never My Love, which also is featured in weird L.A. detective noir uh, 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 under the Silver Lake, right? Yeah. Then it, it it flows on. It flows out of that into a song that was not released by Johnny Greenwood on the soundtrack called "Puck Beaverton's Tattoo," which later pops up three times in Phantom Thread. I'm just throwing you facts now. You don't have to do anything with this, William. But uh, "Puck Beaverton's Tattoo" that it's like this weird ringing atonal theme plays through and then it melds slowly into mini Ripperton's LaFleur's sound design that does not occur like that anywhere else in the film. This weird, just yeah. sinuous merging of, of, of sonics in the background that gives this chapter its own tone and its own style. And again, there's nothing we can do with this, William. There's no, I don't no, know. It's... There's nowhere you can run with that ball. <laughs> I just had to throw that out there because I think it is so fascinating. And for a scene that I think again, people gloss over, the amount of work and the amount of layering that is going on here, it, it absolutely staggers me. Yeah. I'm and, with you, man. <laughs> speaking of Minnie Ripperton, we got to say a little something for the great Maya Rudolph as Petunia Leeway, the secretary to both Doc Sportello so and his building mate, Dr. Buddy Tubeside, who we never meet in the film. <laughs> and this scene culminates with this great moment in which Maya's mother, Minnie Ripperton, her song is exploding from the soundtrack. Yeah. And again, when you talk about sweetness and humanism and kindness and warmth in PTA's films, uh, this is one of those moments for me because there's a great interview where he's talking about why he chose this song. And he's just, he's like, uh, you know, we don't, Maya and I, we don't get to work together much. So we squeezed her in here. And, you know, we've got her mom singing on Inherit Vice, too. It's, it's, it's a moment that uh, makes me well up every time. As we're looking at Maya, you hear her mom singing this song. It makes me so warm and fuzzy, which is just, <laughs> I love it. Like he builds in that kind of Coppola-esque family, yeah, yeah. family photo album moment. Yeah, that's amazing. Which is just another level of weirdness to this scene. 
in which yeah. ex-adult film star Belladonna slash <laughs> Michelle Sinclair is dropping way too much exposition, way more than any character in any story ever should at any point. And this movie does it like 15 different times. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, what the hell? We'll put my 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 old lady's uh, mom's uh, best song on the soundtrack just so I can see her and hear her mom's voice at the same time because <laughs> it makes me tingly. The, yeah. That's that's why this movie's magic, man. That's why it's this per- movie. It's perfect, man. Yeah, I mean, it, and I think, I mean, I think it it is a it is a scene that works on that kind of. I mean, I mean, a lot of the movie does this though. All of the movie really works on some emotional level where, you know, you're you're feeling something you don't even know a lot of the time, or you don't know why you're feeling the thing you're feeling. I mean, especially the, in the first couple of viewings, um, that's how it was for me. You know, I mean, I just. I was responding to things emotionally and I didn't know that. I didn't know that stuff. I didn't know anything, you know I mean? I didn't, I didn't know um, who Michelle Sinclair was. I mean, that's, I think that's part of what struck me so much about that, that scene when I first saw it, because in this, um, in this cast of people who, you know, pretty much I knew everybody, I think, except yeah. for, you know, Hong Chow and Michelle Sinclair, like who had major roles, everybody was pretty recognizable um you know it stuck out uh you know so i mean i think definitely those early viewings were all i mean and still really are all about some some primitive emotional response to what's going on and and just letting letting some of that information glide over you but not not derail you you know you're you're exactly right and i did the exact same thing when i walked out of this the first time i was i was in a daze happily i loved it but i i immediately knew i was like i gotta go home and i have to figure out who Jade was, yeah. and I have to I have to figure out who Clancy Sherlock was. Yeah, like, I don't know how these two people who and when I started thinking about, it, I was like, they literally did nothing in the film but give exposition, yeah. and they just disappeared. <laughs> they just went off into the ether. And again, tribute to this film that two of the most fascinating, watchable performances, two of the best performances in the film, are by first timers. This is yeah. Hong Chao's first film. This is Michelle Sinclair's first film. First timers who were given no characterization. They were given no real, you know, kind of emotional beats. They were just said, catch the audience up. Yeah. Catch us up. Jay does it with the golden fang when she's leading into Doc's car. He's like, it's a vertical integration package. Uh, And then she does it here just saying, oh, by the way, uh, for the sharp-eared audience members out there, I'm going to mention, isn't it kind of weird that Bigfoot's taking notice of Doc and recommending <laughs> that people go to Doc for this detective that he supposedly hates? Interesting how he's pointing things at Doc now. Oh, yeah. and hey, there's a boat. Hey, you remember there's a boat with boy. <laughs> isn't this interesting? Oh, by the way, Puck Beaverton, we've heard of him before from the other exposition machine, the guy with the tattoo. Interesting character. <laughs> hmm. He disappeared right after Sherlock died. I wonder how this all connects. Yeah. And God it's it's funny sitting here talking to you i'm realizing nothing about this movie should work just like yeah. bring me bring me the head of alfredo garcia the transmissions should slip completely out of gear we should hit the ditch but as a tribute to to pta to pinch and to everybody involved it always stays between the ditches every yeah. single time it's incredible yeah it is i mean and i i mean that's what great artists do i mean they could take something that shouldn't work and make it work i mean it's like 
in Twin Peaks to come back to Twin Peaks to return again. And like a two or three minute scene of somebody sweeping the floor shouldn't work. <laughs> but it fucking works. And well, and for that, some people, yeah. for some people, it didn't. But I, I was happy. I was laughing and clapping. But Lynch had the audacity to spin that, sh- spin that Showtime money on that kind of show. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. On that note, I got to cut you off because I'm dangerously close, dangerously close to asking you your every thought about season three of Twin Peaks and then telling you mine. So sorry. I have to, <laughs> you should be. I got to say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For oh, man. Thank you for having me, man. Talking to me about this scene, which I really love and I think is so, so much more integral than people realize, which. I say that like this is something that people talk about a lot. I'm sure there's people walking around the street really arguing. You know that Clancy Sherlock scene? I don't know how important that was. What do you think? Your thought? But for the small subculture amongst us, I I was glad to have someone on who really digs this scene the way I do and sees yeah. that there's really there's a special there's a really special short film that's playing here from her performance to that amazing line about the boulevards of regret to that just the really sweet family's Rudolph and Anderson moment of putting her mother's song over her face and just, yeah. just lingering with that for a minute. That's great. What's better than that? What's better than that? Oh, and you know what? I was going to let you go. And my God, my God, <laughs> what a bad host I am. We're going to blame it on quarantine blues. I didn't even mention because we got so excited about <laughs> Uh, Clancy Sherlock, that this scene has my favorite joke in the movie. Yeah, something something Spanish. Spanish. <laughs> and here I am skipping it. <laughs> Terrible host. Terrible host. Terrible host. But yeah, real quick, I saw this film. I don't know how many times theatrically, way more than is healthy. <laughs> and I gotta say, I got angrier and angrier during my favorite joke. No one ever laughed in the theater. <laughs> When she's like, Era Permintio, blah, blah, blah. I, I screwed it up. But what's that? He's like, it's, it's, it, it means, uh, it means uh, it's Spanish for sorry about that. That's the name of Wolfman's uh, in, uh, new endeavor. And the fact that Doc writes something Spanish, like he's going to see that, it's going to make no sense. So when good. He shows up if he ever does something Spanish. So it's, good. And no one ever laughed. No one ever laughed. I was sitting there with a cigar and a drink like Max Cady in, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and just guffawing at that. It's hilarious, man. It's it's definitely, I mean, I don't, I think my, it's, it's one of the things I've, I've laughed at the most, but probably my, my number one thing that I continue to laugh at the most is in the diner scene when the waitress says, um, what can I get for you, little buddy? That makes me that makes me laugh. That's so endlessly. sweet. That's so sweet. <laughs> can I get for you, little buddy? Well, um, while we're yeah. at it, just in testing <laughs> listeners' patience, uh, one other one shout out for is when uh, uh, when Bigfoot's having a drink and he's on the phone with Doc and his son is sitting next to him. He tells him, he goes go to bed, and, and, and Doc whispers like, "Why do I gotta go to bed? You called me." <laughs> so good so good oh boy me and you we're gonna go watch the movie now yeah man enough of the episode all right william i gotta say thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you for coming on today oh my pleasure man thanks for having me and if anyone is out there who who wants some just really really amazing crime novels with mosaics of wild ass characters i implore you check out his work 
check out his work. Check out his work. Do you want to tell anyone where they can find it? I can find it at your local independent bookseller. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my new book is called City of Margins. My last one is A Friend of the Gift You Give Yourself. I have a couple other novels, Gravesend, which is the neighborhood I'm from in Brooklyn, and uh, The Lonely Witness. And they're all, yeah, they're all available. Um through your local indie or bookshop.org. Uh, yeah, and, uh, thanks. And you're doing some work with uh, Nicholas Winding Refn right now too, yeah? Yeah, I did. I guest edited the Noir volume of buynwr.com, um, which is uh, a, a site that it's basically kind of quarterly issues where there's three restored films um, and a, a guest editor who kind of, picks the content surrounding those films. So I didn't pick the films. Um, the films were picked um, by uh, the managing editor, Jimmy McDonough and um, Peter Conheim, the restorationist and Nicholas Winding Refn. Um, but yeah, I got to, I got to curate all the content surrounding them. And uh, yeah, so this is the, I'm, I'm talking to you on April 29th of so Friday, May 1st, the, uh, the last chapter of my volume goes live. The first two have been um, in March and April. So, and this episode's going to drop on May first, nice. which is also, 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 you can be heard on the online version of Noir at the Bar on the first. Yes. Yeah, there's a there's a Noir at the Bar um, that's uh, for Southern writers, and and since I live in the South now. Um, they were kind enough to invite me um, to take part in this, and yeah, you could find out. I don't know off the top of my head. I don't have that information, but just it's look. Be go on, go to Google. Hit yeah, hit Noir at the Bar. You'll find it's it. It's going to be on Crowdcast. It's a vir- virtual Noir at the Bar. Obviously, nobody's yeah. meeting in a real bar right now. Um, Unfortunately, but yeah, yeah. We did we did one other one. Uh, I did one other one in the New York virtual Noir at the Bar a few weeks ago, and and that was that was great. So um, it's, uh, there's Noir, it's Noir authors reading their work essentially yeah yeah just i mean last time we did it we the new york one there was a bunch of us there's like 13 of us and readings were real short and it moved it moved quick and it was it was fun um and you know it's it's usually uh that one was in support of a bookstore in queens and this one i can't think of the bookstore off the top of my head um uh but yeah this is also it's going to be kind of in in support of and um and in unison with uh, a small independent bookstore who will have books available during the reading. So you can support Great. them while their, their doors are, are shuttered. But a lot of bookstores aren't open to the public, but are still shipping. So, um, and I will give a shout out to, um, I live in Oxford, Mississippi now, and I have one of the best bookstores in the country, square Books. So if you, if you did feel like ordering my books and, and you wanted to order directly from, Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi. Um, that'd be great, and they have signed copies available there. So, and again, I highly recommend William's latest, City of Margins. I bought it the week it came out, first week of March, right before the hammer came down. It's one of the last fun things I did before everything got weird. Got me through the beginning, the beginnings of this madness. And now, thanks, man. Talking to him about this movie that we both seen like 500 times. <laughs> it's gonna get me through today, at least, at least today. On that note, again, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for talking to me about this movie. And thanks to everyone for listening. And please join me next time where myself and a very special guest are going to receive a postcard from Shasta Faye Hepworth.
You can only cruise the boulevards of regret so far. And then you've got to get back up onto the freeway again. Boy, oh boy, that's pretty good advice, no matter who says it. Be it Hope, or Clancy, or Tommy Pynchon, or PTA. Guess that's one of the gifts of inherent vice. How it means something special, no matter who you are. But how about those quarantine blues? Do they get any easier? Do they ever end? How many times will our intrepid host have to rewatch this damn thing until he cheers up? We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.